Hello, everybody, and welcome back to This Week in Innovation. Today, I have a, an old clubhouse friend, Brandon Rial, business transformation leader at Capgemini Invent. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you, Brian, as well. Likewise. Welcome, Brandon. So, Brandon, why don't you start by talking about, we all know Capgemini, but Capgemini Invent is a term that I, a group that I haven't, I've just only started to take a look at. So why don't you unpack a little bit about what that is? Tell us about yourself, your background, and what you're doing there. Yeah, first of all, my background, as you mentioned in our clubhouse meeting, I have a deep background in retail, merchandising, supply chain. I actually was a retailer. So I walked the walk, I talked the talk, and I enjoy just solving complex business challenges and enabling through technology advancements and transforming businesses and growing revenue streams. And just halfway through my career, I decided to make the pivot over to consulting. And I joined a number of firms where I focused on business, digital, and technology transformations, helping to pivot these organizations, especially in the retail space, to the new ways of shopping, new ways of engaging a customer, and especially with all the digital Innovations have come up the last five to 10 years that really focus on the customer journey, the customer experience, and across all the platforms you can imagine. Capgemini Bent is essentially the transformation innovation powerhouse that doesn't compare to a larger firm. People know that Capgemini is a really large and significant technology implementation partner that, that really works with companies for two or four, five-year engagements that really drives process improvements and, and is that integration partner you have. But the, but the innovation side, it's really the Capgemini Bent team. It's a conglomeration of about 10 different firms that were acquired the last three or four years. I think back in 2018, the firm decided to create this subsidiary that focused on digital transformations, on really accelerating ideas, and not just driving innovative ideas, but how do you actually operationalize those? How do you make them real? How do you actually provide significant value to the customer? How do you provide improvements for the employees and how they do business and how they scale that? We are actually working close partnership with the larger Capgemini team, but in general, we'll do those short-term, agile, quick acceleration of value and growth for the customers. And our focus is on the low-term sustainable partnerships, especially with all the just all the disruptions that the industry is facing. And we're there and we have the capabilities and teams to address all that. So interesting. What, how long is the typical engagement? Is that something you can talk about? Again, so we typically like hitting the door, expand for more. So our goal is to do that, that crawl up run approach to innovation. And really that 12-week engagement is our first starting point in relationship with our typical clients to really pinpoint the challenges, the opportunities, and the gaps, and then to find that long-term roadmap together. It's a, it's a matter of having the right experts in the room, the right understanding of the industry, and the right understanding of the capabilities that are out there from a technology perspective. So in this journey, as customers get started, Brendan, with the with the early engagement of 12 weeks, where do they where do they go from there? So is this initially are these customers mostly customers who don't have an innovation process in place? Or do they have something in place? How does that how does this play out? It's a combination of those two. So it, it can be a more mature organization that actually has a dedicated innovation team that really does, but they don't have the foundational framework of funneling those innovative ideas into something tangible, something real. How do you build this to a backlog? How do you actually prioritize those? How do you actually then go ahead and build those from an agile perspective into real work products that actually will result in a solution? So we've seen those clients in that journey who are, have some maturity in the space. And they need some help and uh, an advisor, a partner to guide along that journey, given that framework and foundation you need. There are other organizations that are just delving into it, but they really need to brainstorm how what innovation means to them, what it means to operations. They need a lot more support from us 
from a advisory perspective and actually all the capability to need to get innovation started. There are different paths there's, and it's very unique for client, for sector. We can talk more about later where I see some sectors are a lot more advanced than others in the retail industry. Perfect. Now, in terms of an overall adoption perspective, as customers are going through your engagement and getting an understanding of what they want to be doing and what are the priority, how many, what percentage, like like at a higher level, just what is the adoption rate like going forward? They make it like an ongoing and they have a, because that's one of the challenges with innovation, right? Sometimes it becomes a very project-based compared to it becomes a lifetime practice in the company. Yeah, that strategic mindset shift is taking this knowledge from being a product-based methodology to really looking at it from a product or initiative perspective. What is the business challenge you need to solve? What is the customer experience enhancement we're trying to actually produce? And you think of it in terms of actually building a product or a service or a capability versus a project. That's what we're trying to do. That's what our main goal is with the clients we work with is to become more projectized, to be more customer-centric, and to actually produce things that will add value for the customer, to drive business growth and revenue, and actually help enable the workforce to be more effective and productive. So when a client comes to you initially, are they, are, man, I want to ask what percent, I mean, I want to do the analyst thing and figure out exactly what the percent of innovative retailers is still in retail. I used to, we used to talk about it being three to 4% of retailers would be truly innovative, or at least cutting edge and leading edge. And then 25% fast followers, 50% mainline, and then the dreaded slow adopter. So when somebody knocks on your door, are they already innovative? Do they want to become innovative? Yeah, the, good question, Jeff. I think they have... They've they committed to their team. Do they committed to the shareholders that they want to become more innovative? They have some ideas how they want to approach it in some cases, but they don't have that formal structure. They don't have that, but that prioritization of data to become more innovative. And most critically, they haven't embedded innovation as part of all the capability units, whether it's a supply team perspective, store operation perspective, merchandising, certain planning, pricing. Having innovation as standalone operation is doomed to fail. So they, you have to in- incorporate and embed innovation and a customer first mentality across the entire organization. Otherwise, it's, it doesn't result in anything substantial, in my mind. So that means, Brendan, this probably also will, I think you made a really great point. That means this also needs to be like a very C-level driven initiative or a board level driven initiative. Is that what you're currently seeing in the industry, the ones that succeed? The ones that succeed, yes. As long as that, that top-down direction, that executive sponsorship, because ultimately it comes down to the people component. Yes, people, there's process technology. The people component in my mind is most critical. And in my experiences, where all transformation innovation initiatives fail is where they'll get people to adopt and evolve and pivot to the new changes or embrace it. Totally, totally agree. And that's one of the things that Jeff and I cover a lot in our podcast as well, because that's what that, that has been one of the challenges in innovation. So as you are in this journey, like how are how are leaders like adapting it? In our leaders, are you seeing scenarios where you know it starts with an innovation team who actually starts this engagement with you, or does it start at the board level? How it how is it propagating through the company? What is like the general practice? You- in my experience, it typically is now an innovation team. In the past, over the last several years, it was a, a board directive initiative and it was a more enterprise wide. But now we're seeing that these smaller teams, more agile teams, like such as an innovation practice that you mentioned, right? where now they're coming with funding ideas and they work with the cross-functional teams and they're coming up with value-added incremental things they can do to improve customer experience, to improve how they operate. That, that really, that 
paradigm shift from that long-term transformation and it was two to three-year engagements where there's a substantial investment of time and people are capabilities and there's a cost component to it not realize value. We've seen those actually dissipate and actually evolve into that agile, that really clear, concise path to value. And it's, uh, it's more incremental. Give the customer what they want, try to pivot to where the customer behaviors are going, and also enable the workforce, both at the store level and the corporate offices, to be able to respond and re react more predictively. So if you can provide incremental value versus longer-term engagements, that's where we're seeing things go directionally. Perfect, perfect. So one thing here, Brandon, I think what we've seen in the past, I'm sure you guys have seen this in Capgemini as well, like when these innovation initiatives are initially set up and rolling across the organization that like, like how do they actually set the expectation of what the transformation or the initiative would do, right? Because the setting of these KPIs in two-year engagement or two-year investment in innovation would yield X, Y, Z or the innovation team that they hire would yield X, Y, Z. How do you, do you guys have a framework and something that you help your customers think through this thing? Or, and how, what are you seeing generally among clients in terms of, because sometimes some folks underset the priorities and claim victory soon. So others overset the priority and fail. And others have no priority and then they come back and they figure out what to do. What are you seeing and what is what do you recommend? What are your practices here? Yeah, great question, bro. I think what we're seeing is they'll have an idea holistically where they want to go, or they have a real strategic focus for, uh, say, their supply chain. We need to digitize the supply chain. We need to do workforce enablement at the store level. Then they make, they will drive a certain KPI or where they consider a metric they want to go up against. But the challenge is, what are all the, the epics and the features and those products and services they, get, they need to produce to enable that growth, to enable hit those targets? And that's where we come in as those advisors and experts to Accelerate value. We have these accelerated frameworks. We have the AIA innovation framework. We have also in our practice, we have a mix of folks who were in the industry. But now we have design, a design house. We have fraud. We have innovation teams. So we have a very a robust and comprehensive approach to innovation. And the most critical part is how do you prioritize and how do you actually enable innovation come to life? And that's where the rubber hits the road. You can't set, a, set that up and leave it. How do you prioritize? That's the gate. Do you start at the, at the function level, like supply chain and merchandising? Do you start at the CEO level or do you start at the CEO level? Where, how do you do that? It's definitely top down, but we actually want to break it out to more, more tangible ways of doing things. So we'll actually build value streams where we'll have a supply chain team, we'll have a customer service team, we'll have a accounting team risk and compliance, whatever they may be. And within that, those value streams will have these cross-functional folks who say, these are the high-level ethics you want to actually come up with. These are the three, three top goals for the next quarter you want to achieve. Then how do we do that by actually building these 10 features? These 10 things actually will help us achieve those goals. But it cannot happen unless you have the cross-functional team involved. So we're looking at the, your VP level, your director level of supply chain, your VP of merchandising, your VPs of, of store operations, and they will work together and collaborate in a, a very agile way. These are the three things that we focus on, and these are the 20 things we actually produce tangibly to actually enable these things to come to life. So it, the goal is that you have to continuously improve. So innovation is not a, a static experience for these retailers. They need to actually incrementally add more in. So if you produce one thing and you feature for, the, for a mobile device or their native apps, you actually have to keep evaluating, assessing how it's going, see how it's performing us through KPIs, and then see if there's any, any revenue growth or any evidence improvements have come out of that. 
And then you continue to evaluate and then you go the whole cycle again and go to that backlog and that prioritization of innovation imperatives and then keep that cycle going. So it's not a static thing. It's not a two or three year roadmap. It's a continuous cycle of innovation and that more successful retailers who are able to pivot and adjust to the marketing conditions have this cadence in place. But if they don't, so we capture my event is that trusted partner. So let me ask you a really tough question. When you're done after about six months to a year, is the retailer spending less money or more money on whatever solution you're working on? Less, because there's a significant cost overhead in <clears throat> running these operations, these where we see innovation teams that are not efficient, they're not prioritizing the work. So once that efficiencies kick in, once the teams get into that cycle of that continuous improvement that come up with those features and those, and those uh, new service capabilities, there's a lot more efficiencies and, and scale that it comes out of that. And the goal is to actually, we want to walk away, transfer all our knowledge to them. So we empower them. They have the knowledge they need, the capabilities they need, the frameworks they need to accelerate innovation. So essentially, their, their costs will go down of running the operations and their value will go up because they're incrementally producing these new ideas and concepts and, and actually operationalized versus going to a sales approach for later. Yeah, that's one of, that's always been one of my bugaboos being the, uh, the forecast mm-hmm. guy on retail IT spend is right. the idea that success always had to equal increased IT spend. And right. when you're dealing with 2 million retailers, 500 tier ones and thousands tier two, and then millions in tier three through five, it's hard to make that case. But I always try to get away from using that as the sole benchmark. If you right. needed to use that number to justify IT spend, awesome, fine. Do whatever you want with my, my data, but right. don't always assume that more IT spend means a better functioning organization. It just might mean, just might mean a, a much more leaky boat. So that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Good point, Jeff. This, we've seen so many inefficiencies. There's legacy IT debt, all infrastructure. We talk about the no-code, low-code. If you can only imagine the, some of the challenges and, and nightmares I've seen out there from an architecture perspective. So I think that's one of their opportunity is to really clean their architecture up, streamline a way that this retailer can actually invest, de-invest in the whole architecture and reinvest in something actually to provide value. And that's provide that intelligence to the analytics and visibility to data, visibility to trends, and to be able to track and then forecast properly. Those elements are still out there and they're still plenty of companies with 20 or 30 year old architecture that's just passed together to, to somehow operate. I'm really proud. Of, you said low code and Brian didn't scream over, overly over, over the, over his mic. So thanks Brian for not doing that. Oh, he got a big smile on his face. That'll tell you for sure. Dean, I'll ask you another tough question. Feel free to punt on this. Um, and it goes back to my experience bringing in a WMS system when I was 25 and I made the very stupid mistake of suggesting to a couple of people that, oh, we're gonna, this is going to be a lot more efficient. And those people actually made money in it being not efficient. And right. I learned a very good lesson as a very young warehouse leader. Yes. I got to assume there's people making money with inefficiency. So when you come in and you say, hey, listen, I assume you don't lead with that. Um, but how do you navigate that, those waters? You, you have to look at their processes and, and you actually have to sit down with them and have a face-to-face conversation with these leaders and these functional experts. Tell me about your day, your life. Tell it, what, what do you go about doing this process? How do you actually do it? What tools do you use? What's missing? What are you doing offline? I mean, you, you assume we live in this fully integrated cloud-based world where everything's connected seamlessly. That isn't the case. There are, Excel, unfortunately, is the, the best friend out there of the industry. It has not gone away and for a CEO future, it's not. But these fully, that the, Really, the, the goal is to get that fully integrated platform 
where everything's visible, everything's transferable, everything's in a cloud-based place so you can slice and dice the data. And that doesn't exist necessarily. So we look for those inefficiencies, those gaps. We won't actually respect the work they've done because they've been successful for decades. And the two have this, this, this knowledge that really matters. So what do you, what can you take from their current processes and determine what could be enhanced and optimized and what could we do to make it better connected and more efficient. There'll be cost savings, but also be new ways of doing business with driving new revenues, increased revenues. Yeah. The other thing I think also, Jeff, what we've actually seen in a lot of these circumstances is that there is so much legacy in there that a lot of these brands and retailers can't replace legacy that fast, right? That's where this upskilling and low-code, no-code type platform comes in. As long as it has the, it is architecturally scalable, right? Which one of the things that we focus at, at Iterate and Interplay, right? To provide an architecturally scalable platform, you can actually create business services that you can create a service layer that you can build on top of that is also continued to scale as a business, right? Because that's mm-hmm. one of the challenges because the, like the rip and replace is not that easy within enterprises. That's one of the challenges that you... And the other thing, problems is like a lot of times IT already has a lot of built-in priority. They like in this Amazon style, one-way gate projects versus two-way gate projects, right? Some of these long projects that take years, like the one-way gate yeah. projects, are hard to convince leaders to go through. So that's why I think this whole, this bridge building is a big part of the, the business. Absolutely agree. It's truly a mindset shift because IT organizations are just naturally tuned to think operationally, the tasks need to run, maintain the systems, the infrastructure, keep the business going, which is all crucial. But then there's the innovation inside of the house, which really focus on that value-added components, the customer experience enhancements, and how to become more digital, more connected. So it's a, it requires a robust, I would call it change management or change enablement. And that's where we can come in as well as a cap organization with our workforce enablement team and our to help organizations pivot and shift. It's not just about technology. It's not about the tools, the capabilities, it's the people that has to make it happen and the mindset shift to get there. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> Do you have to be leading edge or bleeding edge to be innovative? I think there's inherent amount of risk between bleeding edge and leading edge. I think that it is how risk adverse is the organization that willing to take those risk or calculate risk and certainly you can go there. But if you're not in an industry that's that's Changing day to day, or if you're not in the industry that requires that leading edge innovation, it's a, definitely a risk of evaluation has to be done there. Can you pilot it? You can, yeah, now, our recommendation is can you really pilot things and measure, measure and test the results. You want to do a full-fledged program where you're going uh, chain-wide with the innovation uh, component. Rather, you want to actually pilot a district or a region or actually a department, test and measure the results, and it could be a little less risk. It could be more risk-averse that way. Also be able to scale up quicker once you, re- once you actually prove the results. Yeah, what's also interesting, Jeff, there is the risky equation. And Brendan, let me know if you agree or you have different comments. Is that like the risky equation that applies to a traditional business process also applies to innovation, right? Yeah. What is like the biggest bu- bank you can get for the, the bank for the buck? You know, exactly. The, the risk-reward principle, we won't yeah, hurt yeah. about it. So it's, that's an evaluation. We'll do with firms, and we actually uh, will do that financial modeling to see what, what the cost components are, what the incremental things we need to add, and then new solution capabilities and tools and frameworks to add, and what the expected results will be from a revenue perspective, that lift, that, that increase of margin, increase of EBITDA. So that's something we'll actually work 
to ensure that prioritization of these imperatives goes through. That is the financials and, and quantifying things as a way to actually manage risk and mitigate it. What emerging technologies are you particularly bullish on? Let's say maybe out 18 months. For retail, I'm all in on social selling, on the meta, metaverse engagement. Oh, that's a whole uh, separate conversation we're going to have for sure. But, so, <laughs> but social selling, so define that a little bit. What do you mean by social selling? So social selling is that connect consumer. Yeah. Right? We live in an age where everyone's perpetually connected to a device and we have to go where the customer's going. And we, we highly recommend our clients to connect and engage with really authentic content across social media channels. They want to actually convert this customer, make that experience seamless and intuitive for the customer, whether on Instagram or TikTok. But you have to actually have all the supportive processes and infrastructure in place to make that happen, to be mobile first, digital first, and customer first. But it's all about storytelling. It's all about being authentic as a brand. Uh, those technologies are fascinating to me. And from a retail operational perspective, I'm all in as an ex-planner and a buyer. If I had the tools that are available today, I think of the wonders, wonderful things I could have done as a merchant and a planner back in the day. So AI, predictive analytics, machine learning, are, are truly uh, groundbreaking. And if we can start introducing those to the industry, we get ahead of the curve, especially in an industry that's been fully disrupted by the supply chain challenges globally, by the impacts of the pandemic, by now the inflationary periods. Now we're seeing so many retailers, big size, large size retailers who are overwhelmed in inventory because they overcompensated because they want to have a contingency stock in place in case they don't have the inventory. So. If they could be a bit more predictive and have more analytics at their disposal, maybe they wouldn't be in this situation there, predicting they're in that late to mark things down. So let's go back to the, the metaverse conversation. We got into an interesting discussion, a little slash debate yesterday on Clubhouse talking about the different cuts on the metaverse. I think I know where you're coming from, but unpack your thinking a little bit, pros and cons, what's real, what's not real, and how should retail executives be thinking about this thing, this blob that we've now packed a lot of things around called the metaverse? Yeah, I think there's a lot of hype out there. I think it, how you actually make it real. The fact is where the emerging customers coming up, whether they're Gen Alpha or Gen Z or the millennials, they have the power and authority of discretionary income. They're in the gaming world and they're in this environment already. Why not try to engage with them through the metaverse and with something authentic and interesting and that will help drive, drive them to actually engage with your brand more. So if you could do it in a way that's uh, unique and that's going to really resonate this work with this generation, and certainly that's another sales channel or engagement channel. It may not lead to a purchase, Jeff, but it actually will lead to a good experience or something that's actually drive to stimulate your brand. And we've seen uh, Nike has delved into it in that marketplace, as well as uh, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and others in the in luxury space. So again, these firms are really focused on innovation and customer experience and digital already. So the metaverse is that next logical step of that journey, that evolution, and we go where the customer is, go where they're actually engaging. It's not going to replace the brick and mortar stores where still 85 to 80% of the sales are happening. It's not going to replace the, uh, the native apps and social selling through social channels. Certainly it's going to continue with the metaverse the next evolution in my mind. I think it's so much potential there. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. And so as we navigate through some of these conversations we've had in Ricardo's room on, on Clubhouse and depending on whether somebody's either too hyped about it or not hyped enough. If somebody's too right. hyped, I guess as a good analyst, I want to go the other way. If somebody's underhyped, then I want to, 
look, there's real technology there. There's, there's with, without a doubt, real technology. Will it all add up into some crazy thing where you and I walk through a virtual store looking at monkeys or something? I don't know. That I'm not interested in. Do I want to kind of experiment with a kayak at REI, kind of testing through different rapids? Heck yeah, I want to do that. I don't want to do that in a heartbeat. And we're already doing that. It's called flight simulation. So we've had pilots have been doing this for 30 years. I don't know. It's just one of the, it's that one technology that I've seen in an awful long time where it just seems like right. it's a hot button issue on either side, either now it's all nonsense or it's the greatest thing ever and everything, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, right? technically I think it might end up going through the hype cycle as well. Brian, Brian everything goes through the hype yeah. cycle. What everything. I mean is we, like a lot of the little, a lot of the brands, the big brands are trying this out as marketing campaign. That's like most marketing campaigns end. They have an end date on it. And then once they end, if enough campaigns don't actually yield the right benefits, then the traditional metric and the math that most marketers use, they will measure it by the yardstick and say, hey, it didn't work well. Then it'll go through the valley of dissolution for a while and then the few will catch on. And eventually there may be business cases written saying a few did well, did really well. Yes. And they may think about like platforms from that point onwards. So I think this is one of those, just like everything else, I don't think it'll fail. I think it's there to stay, but I think there is also probably a valley of dissolution coming pretty soon. It's the trough of disillusionment, not the valley of the shadow of death, the trough of dissolution. <laughs> the trough of, yeah, exactly. I'd have my yeah, it, card. It could be a hurricane or a storm <laughs> or, a, <laughs> or even just a rain shower, it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, it's probably all of the above. So if... Brandon, what would you tell somebody if they came and I'm sure any, every retail executive has to have bumped into this world a word a ton. What's your advice? What do you, how do you, how do you deal with some of the hype? And then how do you get, how do you get, I want executives to put their hands on technology and experiment it in a controlled experiment, become comfortable with failure. Yeah. That's my big, yeah. I'm screaming, I've been begging for 20 years. Be, accept failure if you do it smartly. But this idea that you can't, you know, and that's from very personal experience. If, if you can't fail at a project, then you can't succeed. And I think that's been retail's biggest stumbling block is right. this fear of failure. So what do you, how do you, what's your counsel for somebody that's trying to understand what they should be doing with it? In my mind, if you keep every single focus, every single initiative on the customer and the, your customer experience, you have to do whatever it takes from a strategy and execution perspective to keep your customer engaged and satisfied. The customer loyalty right now is the most <clears throat> challenging aspect of the relationship. How do you retain these customers? Is it require boldness? Is it require element of risk? Is it require innovation? If you are not willing to take a chance or strategic risk to actually drive that engagement and keep that customer coming back for more, you're, you're doomed to be obsolete. And that retain the retention cycle is the most challenging aspect right now. Because the customers will find there are ways of losing customers that work didn't exist before. They have a bad experience on the social channel. They have a bad experience with your e-commerce engineer or your mobile app. <clears throat> or in general, something didn't work the way they expected from a product perspective. So you cannot afford as a retailer not to take those calculated risk and drive the innovation imperative forward. And you have to be willing to take a loss. And we've seen, obviously, the big guys like Amazon, Target, Walmart, innovation first. And you'll see them, some of the issues never came to fruition. Some of them actually failed. It didn't resonate with the customer. They have the capacity and the capital investment to do that, but every single retailer has to have a similar mentality. And it's, it's always day one right now because the customer is changing so dynamically and so aggressively. You can't afford to be stagnant. You have to actually take these risks to either be relevant or to be vital forward. You can't assume 
everything's going to be stacked the way it was and that your loyal customers will stay with you. Hey, as you, as a retailer looks around their organization, if they listen to this podcast and they go and look around their organization, what are a couple of telltale signs that they need to do something different? Biggest sign I see, I'm seeing is really within the organization, there isn't an awareness of innovation. There is an awareness of these new ideas that they've enveloped and absorbed and running the business the way they did the last 10 to 15, 20 years, that they're really risk averse or that they're not willing to take on these new challenges. Or innovation isn't embedded within all the functions we talked about, like supply chain or merchandising or store operations or e-commerce. We need these groups to work together and, and break the silos down, actually collaborate and come up with new ways together, new ways to do business, new ways to engage with the customers, and new ways of, of actually driving innovative ideas to reality. This has to be a, a crucial imperative for retailers who are facing price compressions, increased costs, their global supply chain disruptions, gas prices, you name it. And so they cannot afford to, to avoid innovation and the criticality of it. Yeah. And at a uh, labor strike at the Port of Los Angeles, which is on our future, I think. As we wrap up, I like to ask every one of our guests two questions. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs? Never stop learning. Never stop being able to take risk and, and take calculated risk as you're, you're not pursuing you have that you have that runway to take calculated risk to actually do what an innovation leader has to do. Take risk, actually see where it goes, and just continue to pivot as professionals. If the one thing doesn't work out, you have the chance to actually change your approach and try something else. And then be a lifelong learner, but also know the power of your network. You really find ways to help each other get through things together, be more collaborative and be more open to new ideas. And I think Learning is the most crucial part for a young professional is to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and apply those learnings, but would be willing to uh, take on new ideas. And finally, what skills do you, that you use now do you wish you would have paid more attention to back either in college or at the early part of your I think the software skills. I think we were so focused on running the businesses, doing the everyday work, but the software skills, 90% of what we do is actually engage with clients, engage with leaders. And I had the approach I have today or the understanding or the depth and breadth of knowledge of how to deal with people, we can become more, more effective as, as professionals. I think uh, there were some rough patches. We all got through that early part of our careers. And I think if I had that savviness, that understanding that the people component is the most crucial part, I think it would have been nice to have that knowledge back then. For sure. That's probably a good place to put a pin in it. Brandon, hey, thanks so much for this conversation. I definitely going to be following up either in Clubhouse or maybe getting you on the pod again as you get more experience uh, working with retailers. I think you're at the center of what has to happen, this whole transformation, this whole push towards innovation. And I, I definitely want to want to learn a lot more from you and your experiences. Thanks for jumping on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Brian. It's uh, forward to the next podcast. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. Take care. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. For more info, refer to the pod notes below. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us grow. I'm your host, Jeff Roster, analyst at large. If you want to connect, follow us on Twitter at JeffPR or at Brian Sathanation, or connect with us on LinkedIn. Visit my website at roster.retail.com or brians at Until next time, stay safe and have a great week.